Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you all. I want to welcome you, those who are gathered here, those who are joining online. It's great, great to be with you this morning as we head into this final week of Advent together. During this season of Advent, we have been opening the great big epic book of Scripture, God's Word to us, and finding within those pages stories, stories that may often stand on their own, but we've seen together, actually are woven together with purpose and intention to tell one big epic saga. It's the saga of God of the people God created and loves, and God's good plans for them. It's an epic saga of love and redemption. And as we open the pages to chapter one in Eden, we saw that God made people in his own image and then placed them in a garden called Eden. He gave them provision, he gave them purpose. And his intention was that they would enjoy fellowship and intimacy with each other and with God, their creator. But God's people broke their end of the promise and had to leave Eden. We see those leaves of paradise represented here in the book. And then we open to chapter two, which we called promise, because we saw that God was faithful even when God's people were not. God continued to be a promising, covenant-making God, and he promised to one family, Abraham and Sarah, that he would take them, two people, and make of them and from them one mighty nation, a nation that would be called after God's name and given a purpose not to rule over the world, but to bless it. And God promised he would bless the whole world through this one family and this nation. And we see that promise represented in the globes. And then last week we saw chapter three, instruction. We saw that God was good to keep his promise. He made from that one couple, the couple who had been so old had given themselves up for any hope to have children. He made from that one couple the nation Israel. He rescued them from bondage in Egypt and brought them out into a land he promised to give them. God made good on his promise. But then God didn't leave them. He stayed with them and spoke to them words of guidance so that they would know, as God's people, how to stay close to him. God gave them the book of the law. God spoke to them through prophets that he sent, prophets who would instruct them in the ways of living out the law according to the heart of God's law for them. And God promised that one day he would send his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit who would come in the the making and fulfillment of a new covenant and that God's instruction would come written in the minds and on the hearts of God's people. And so we see those inscribed hearts represented coming from our epic book as well. This morning we turn to chapter four, crown. Before we dig deeper this morning, let's center our hearts in prayer. Loving creator, guiding and present God, This morning, we once again turn our hearts toward you and ask that you would write on them, that you would write on them exactly as you would choose, because we trust that you intend good for us. We ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. 
Amen. This morning, I want you to think about the last time you had somebody stick up for you. Somebody stood up for you, and it felt good to know that someone had your back. And I want you to think specifically of a time that not only was it good to have someone standing up for you, but it, it mattered that they had power or position or authority. Their word mattered, and they were able to do for you something you couldn't do for yourself. They were able to, to advocate for you, maybe to stand in your place. When we're feeling helpless or overwhelmed or backed against a wall, it really feels good to have someone standing behind us and standing up for us. Someone who has our best interest in mind and is actually in a position to do something about them. As we look into the epic story of the Bible, we see that God was always faithful to the people God created. God always knew their best interests and was always in a position to do something about them. God was always powerful enough to act. We never see God's hands tied in Scripture. We see that God was never in over his head. God never got more than he bargained for. For all these reasons and more, God, as we look at the epic story of Scripture, especially in those early stages and phases of the Old Testament, God was always the sovereign of his people, always their king, always the one who was ruling over with love and power the nation of Israel. God's the one the people were supposed to turn to when they felt overwhelmed, when they felt their back was up against the wall, when they found themselves needing an advocate, a champion. And yet we see in this epic story that when the nation of Israel found themselves recipients of the promise of God, living in the land he'd promised to them, they found themselves looking around and seeing other people, people that actually displaced for the most part, but they looked at how they operated and they, they saw that these other people around them had kings, kings whom they could crown, kings who could stand up for them, kings who would lead them into battle. And so God's people, Israel, ended up really liking this notion of a human king wearing a metal crown and sitting on a physical throne. They liked the idea of a king who could lead them out into battle. Samuel was a prophet of God, and he can be considered the last in the line of judges over Israel. And we read in 1 Samuel 8 that all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And they have done from the day, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons 
and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And others to plow his ground and reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Now, in some ways, this answer to the people's request for a king I think falls into the category of be careful what you wish for. Because there's an element in this story in which God is responding to his people and saying, well, if you think you have a better idea of how to be ruled and led, then why don't you go for it and see how it works out for you? Samuel, the prophet of God, makes it so clear that there will be many unpleasant, unintended consequences if the people choose to install a human king to rule over them. And as a friend of mine once paraphrased paraphrased this passage, and the people responded, yeah, whatever, king me. And so God relents and allows the people to crown a human king who will sit on a physical throne. God knows that this desire for a king stems from a sense of rebellion in their hearts, a rejection of God himself as their sovereign ruler, because the people don't want prophets like Samuel, people who will speak from God and on behalf of God, words of instruction and guidance. They want a human king who will rule over them, who will wield authority. And God says, listen to them and give them a king. And so the people get the kind of king they're looking for and asking for. They get a king named Saul. Saul, who is a king skilled in warcraft. They get a king who looks the part. We're told he's tall and handsome. He stands head and shoulder above the others. He has a regal bearing, an authoritative manner. The people get a king who ends up getting completely self-absorbed and off track and disobedient to God. They get a king who ends up much more interested in building his own kingdom than in walking in the ways of the kingdom of God. And so we read in 1 Samuel that the king cast in the image of what the people wanted ends up being dethroned and killed in battle. And a new king is installed according to God's standards. King David seems to come from the wrong family. He's too young, he's too short, he's too inexperienced. 
But God sees and knows David's heart. God is certain of his loyalty. God understands that David is by no means perfect, but he sees in David a heart that is inclined to rely on God rather than on himself. Over the past few weeks, I have referred to uh, Dr. Sandra Richter's book, The Epic of Eden. It's a book I, again, commend to you as one that's really helpful in us gaining an understanding of Scripture, not just as a collection of stories, but as one epic story following an arc of God's love and redemption. And Dr. Richter explains, describes this transition between these two kings this way. David's first royal act is to take control of Jerusalem in order to establish it as Israel's united national capital. His second royal act is to transport the tabernacle, which is the throne room of Yahweh, the true king of Israel, to transport the tabernacle into the capital city. Over the course of his career, David succeeds where Saul had failed. He drives back the Philistines, hemming them into their coastal territory. He subdues the Moabites, Ammonites, and Edomites. David is the one who finally brings the national boundaries promised to Abraham out of the realm of hope and into the realm of reality. And so we see that David's reign as king is established. And we're told that eventually God gives David relief from his enemies. He grants him success because David, for the most part, follows after God's heart. And then David, in this time of relative peace, gets an idea. We read about this idea in 2 Samuel 7, which was introduced to us during our Advent reading this morning. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. It was outside in the plains outside Jerusalem. And Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling, Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God installed David as king in place of Saul, essentially declaring to Israel, if you want a human king, here's what that king should look like. And when David expresses his desire and intention to build a house for God, God responds through the prophet Nathan, I'll I'll show you what building a house looks like. We've seen in this epic saga that, that is God's word to us that God is a God who loves to make promises and keep those promises. God is a God who covenants with the people God created and calls and loves. God's a covenanting God. We see he made promises to to Adam and Eve in the garden. He made promises to Abraham and Sarah. He made promises again to Moses and spoke words of promise and comfort and guidance through the prophets. And now God declares that once again, he is going to covenant with the people he loves. He's going to make more promises. God's going to work through this human king that the people had cried out for to accomplish purposes far beyond their wildest imaginings. God hears David's offer of a house of cedar and says, thanks, but, but no thanks. I'm going to build you a house instead. God doesn't need to live in a house with wooden walls. And God doesn't establish families or houses or kingdoms according to human terms. God makes a covenant with David and through David that establishes David's house and his kingdom as the source of a king who will one day come to bring God's kingdom from heaven to earth. God's promise to David concludes, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Dr. Richter in the book Epic of Eden notes that any attentive reader must stumble over the word forever, which appears here twice. Obviously, such a promise reaches beyond David, his children, beyond the nationhood of Israel itself. How could Yahweh fulfill such a tall order? The answer, of course, will be by means of a child of David who reaches beyond David, beyond Israel, and is himself eternal. When we recall that the legitimate kings of Israel were publicly identified by the means of anointing with oil, we see how it is that the Jewish hope for Messiah was actually the hope for the return of the kings of Israel. Because Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one, the one chosen of God. And so this morning, as we close the scene, close the chapter on King David, At this point in the epic story of Scripture, of God's love and redemption, we encounter once again the people of God, the the descendants of Abraham, 
living in the place of God, these national boundaries promised to Abraham, and living in the very presence of God, the dwelling of Yahweh, now located in the capital city of Jerusalem. But there's hope for the days ahead, even beyond what's already been given in fulfillment of promise. Because an anointed one, another king, was coming. A king whose throne would not just be Jerusalem, but earth itself. The prophets spoke of him. He was part of God's plan and promise from the beginning. Emmanuel, God with us. Promised in the days of old and then expected, looked for, longed for for centuries. He was promised to David. Even though David, I'm sure, couldn't possibly comprehend all that was wrapped up in that covenantal promise from God. Today, as people of this promise, we wait for the return of God's anointed. We wait as people of hope. I invite you to join me in prayer. Loving and powerful, sovereign God, We thank you that today you are here and that you are for us. We thank you for your faithfulness and we praise you as the God who keeps your promises. God, we thank you for reminding us of who you are and who we are as your people. God of hope, we ask that you would renew our hope in the days ahead. We pray that you would strengthen the hope today of any any whose hope is is failing, weak, or fragile. God, we pray that in these days of Advent, you would keep us faithful in our watching, in our waiting, watching for the return of our King, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.